Good morning, welcome. Uh, turn your Bibles to the book of Luke chapter 22, or you can go on your phones, uh, follow along there. We will uh, be jumping around to a few different verses. Uh, so if you do that on your phone, it might be a little bit easier. Otherwise, you can, you can follow along. We've been in our series through the book of Luke. We'll continue through our series um, as we go through it uh, this winter, uh, through the Christmas season. And um, hopefully you guys will be reading through that and getting ready. We've been going from the end back to the beginning. So when we started our series, I told you that what we'd be doing is going back and grabbing the first few chapters over the, the, uh, uh, this period, this time period at the end of, end of the year and when the world around us celebrates Christ's birth and Christmas and all that stuff. And so that's what we'll be doing. And as you know, our series is called To Seek and to Save, uh, the Son of Man. I think everybody's been here before as we've gone through this series, so I'm not going to Hash back over that, Jesus' purpose was to seek and to save the lost. Now today, what I want us to think about is this question. Here's the question. Did you lack anything? Did you lack anything? We just got done with Thanksgiving, right? We just got done with sitting around for most of us in this room. Probably we should have made ourselves lack a few things, right? And we didn't. We ate too many cookies, too much pie, a little too much turkey, um, you know, all those things that we do. And the real question I think that you have to grapple with or we have to grapple with as believers, because if you don't, here's the deal, if you don't grapple and answer this question properly, you can be twisted up and be led down roads that will lead you so far from your heavenly father and so far from the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that wants to be active in your life, that you'll find yourself doing things and being places that you never thought you'd be if you chase this question the wrong way. Did you lack anything? Because really, once we figure out there's something we believe we lack that God's not giving us, isn't it interesting how that begins to dominate our prayers, dominate our thoughts, dominate what we think we should get and we begin to kind of structure our life to try to get that thing we think we lack. And, and God's trying to get us to see that if we truly know him, if we are truly surrendered to him, that regardless of what we have or don't have, regardless of what we go through or don't go through, we can be confident that we will lack nothing in him and we will lack nothing for eternity. We, we can be fully confident in that truth. And, and we're going to see Jesus talking about this with his disciples. And so often it's easy for us to figure out that thing we think we lack and then find ourselves pursuing things and wondering how did we ever get there? Or if you're around your families, looking at family members wondering how in the world did they destroy their lives or get to where they were? Or how in the world are they so wealthy and successful but yet so uncaring? And it just, like, you look at those dichotomies and you wonder, there's, there's so much that this world lacks. This world lacks so much. And we can't get it. We can't. And if we try to get it without God and without him giving us perspective, we'll end up in a mess. And so Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's trying to convince people at the highest holy day of their calendar, Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He's trying to convince them that they are lacking. 
These are a people that now finally have a temple again. They hadn't had a temple for a long time, and Herod has built them a temple. It seems like everything is moving in the right direction for them. The disciples have been following Jesus, believing that Jesus is taking them to become the Messiah warrior who's going to overthrow the Romans, step into the temple and do all these things. And as he goes into the temple and he makes his teachings, his teachings are, they're like, what? They don't make sense. Because they're like, he's talking about dying and not being with them. And he's pointing out things that we're not going to have anything. And and look at that widow. The two pennies are worth more than the rest. And, And they're all looking and they're confused. And Jesus is trying to point them to what's going on. So here's what Jesus was doing. He knows he's in Jerusalem. He knows this is the last time. He knows he's getting ready to die A death he didn't deserve. To take a wrath he didn't deserve. He's getting ready to have things put on him and he is going to lack. He's going to have for the first time in his life that feeling of lacking the relationship with his father on the cross. When he cries out and says, Father, why are you forsaking me? For the first time in his life, Jesus is going to have this question really in him say, Is there anything I lack? And then he, no, there's not. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And so that's where we find ourselves in this story. So what is Jesus doing? Knowing that he's coming to his last day. Knowing that he's coming to the end of his life. Knowing that the summation of his existence is getting ready to be put on display. And whether people will believe in it or not. Here's what it says. During the day, he was teaching in the temple complex. But in the evening, he would go out. And he would spend the night on what is called the Mount of Olives. Then all the people would come early in the morning to hear him in the temple complex. The festival of unleavened bread, which is called Passover, was drawing near. He's going every day and he's spending all day long trying to get people to see that there's nothing they lack if they truly believe in the Father and truly believe in him. He's doing everything he can to say, you're you're coming to Passover thinking that by sacrificing this lamb, you're going to get something. By doing these rituals, you're going to get something. And I'm telling you, there's nothing that you lack. You can do the sacrificial lamb. You can obey the law, but do it from a standpoint of realization that you have everything, not that you're trying to get something. It's not that you lack. It's you've been given everything. You've been given All that you could, like, wow, let's celebrate that. And that's what he's teaching. And then in the evening, he would go out. He'd spend the night on the Mount of Olives. I don't know if he was staying in a tent. We don't have that information. But if he was staying on the Mount of Olives, was was there a house there? Probably not. Might have been. But But he's going and he's staying there in the night. And what was he doing when he went to the Mount of Olives? We'll find that out in a minute. We'll see what he was doing each night. Then all the people would come early and they would come into the temple complex and they're like, we don't really care what's going on with the festival, Passover and unleavened bread, this guy's amazing. We're stopping everything to listen to him. And can you imagine how that would have frustrated the religious people of Jesus' day? How angry they would have become that he was the center of attention and not them. And how wrong that would have been considered that you're taking attention away from the Passover, from what's happening in the temple, which is the the important thing. And Jesus is like, no, that's, I'm the important thing. I'm everything that temple is about. I am the lamb of God. 
That's just a substitutionary, a temporary lamb. I'm the real lamb. And he's every day going in trying to convince them who he is. I don't know how your Thanksgiving was. I don't know what your family traditions are. I don't know how all that kind of went down for you. And I don't know if you stayed all night and it was all day long. It's conversations. And in the evening, you just want to go lay down and take a nap and get away from it all. I don't know. But I can tell you this. It's amazing to me that Jesus is doing everything he can to be sure that his father gets all the glory. Everything you can to say, my father is enough. The relationship that you can have with him is enough. And he's getting ready to prove that by going to a cross when everyone would have said, he has nothing now. And Jesus saying, no, I have everything because I have my heavenly father. And that's exactly what you find in this moment. This is a heavy, heavy moment. And it's the festival of unleavened bread. Do you understand what this meant? This is thousands. We, we celebrate Thanksgiving and Christmas. And we have these traditions. We go to my family on Thanksgiving Day. And then we drive through that night. At night, we weren't on the Mountain of Olives. We were driving across Indiana to go to my family's on Friday. And that's our tradition. That's, that's what we do. And then we normally stay Friday night and come home on Saturday. And that's what we did. And we've been doing that like Every year we've been married, like that's, that's what we do. It's a tradition. You know what's going to happen. You know, know how the kind of gets going to lay it out. This is the same way. The festival of unleavened bread were the days leading up to Passover where people were supposed to be repenting. That's why Jesus, like John the Baptist, had been calling people to say, repent. The kingdom of God is near. It's at hand. Jesus is in the temple saying, hey, repent. The kingdom of God is here right now. Like this is your chance to clean out the leaven. That's sin in the Old Testament. To clean out the sin. To not let the yeast of sin rise in your bread. But to clean it out so that you're ready to meet God. Because he's going to come with his Passover lamb. And when you come to him and say, God, I've, I've confessed everything I know. I, I've, I've given all back to you. You're all that I have. And then you sacrifice the Passover lamb. There's joy. There's joy knowing that I'm... I'm I've done all I can. I've, I'm just trusting in you. I'm trusting that it's not enough, that this lamb isn't enough. But, but I love you, and I just want, to, I want you to clean out my life like we're cleaning out all the leaven out of our house, which is what the Jews would do. That's exactly what Jesus is speaking into. Can you imagine? We, don't need to, we just have a small portion of his teachings during these days, but can you imagine when we get to heaven someday and we'll be able to find out the things he taught? That the the Passover lamb, the actual lamb, man, lamb of God, who we will refer to according to Revelation, Jesus' number one name that we will refer to him in heaven and in Revelation is behold the lamb of God. It is the number one name Revelation gives him for all eternity. It's how we'll recognize him. It's how we'll talk about him. And here he is in the temple with the lambs getting ready to be sacrificed. They're baying. They're selling them. They're getting ready to do this great sacrifice and blood running everywhere and he's teaching about himself is there anything you lack is there anything because if there is there's someone you can come to and find that there's nothing that you really lack is what he's teaching in Luke 2 39 through 44 
It's interesting because just like family traditions, you kind of know what's going to happen and you remember former Thanksgivings. It was funny as we sat around and talked about at our family Thanksgiving, we talked about Thanksgiving's past, right? Like the ghost of Thanksgiving past. No, I'm just kidding. Like we talked about Thanksgivings in the past. Oh, remember when this happened? Remember that? Remember when this went down? And like we're talking about these family stories. This would have been the same for the Jewish people. For faithful Jews, they would have traveled three times to Jerusalem with their families to make the sacrifices. Three times a year they would have traveled. Passover was the one festival that if you missed the other two, this was the one you didn't miss. Everybody went for this one. This is the one that you got. Somebody from your family's got to get there. And isn't it interesting that we find another story about Jesus at the beginning of Luke's gospel. He says, when they had completed everything according to the law of the Lord. That means Joseph and Mary were faithful people. They just wanted to obey their God. They just, they weren't doing it to get something. They were doing it because they believed God loved them and that he had given them everything, that he had even given them a son, miraculously given them the son, Jesus, to them. And they returned to Galilee. They went back to Windfall. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Can anything good come from Windfall, meth capital of Tipton County? Like seriously, Like, they returned back to their town of Nazareth. The boy grew up. What happens to us? We just grow up, and then we keep growing up. Well, kind of we shrink and grow out after we grow up. Like, that's a part of life. But, I mean, the boy grew up, and he became strong, filled with wisdom, and God's grace was on him. And don't we tell stories at Thanksgiving about that? I mean, Clint walked into our Thanksgiving, and everybody's like, whoa, what happened? Because he's like shot up. He's taller than I am. And everybody's like, wow, what are you feeding that kid? Like, again, it's, he grew up. And look what it says. And God's grace was on him. Can you imagine that being said about you? Like, it's just obvious that God's grace, like his, his favor is just all over this kid. And it goes on and it says, every year his parents traveled to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. Jesus has been going to Passover his whole life, 33 years, faithfully going to Passover with his family, leading his siblings to go to Passover, leading his disciples to go to Passover and doing the same thing. Like we go, we celebrate, it's awesome, and we come back home, and it's, it, it's a trip for the family. They travel, they come back. It's, it's this moment that, that, that in, that's recorded by Luke earlier. And then he just kind of inserts and says, but when he was 12 years old, remember, there's family Thanksgivings you don't remember. It's like, yeah, we ate, we went home, nothing really significant happened. This one, something significant, it said, they went up according to the custom of the festival. They're following the law. This This is what you do. You just go and it says, after those days were over as they were returning, so the days of unleavened bread, the days of Passover were finished. And so they're like, it's time to go home. We came home Saturday, it's time to go home. The days of Thanksgiving are over, praise the Lord. And so now we're going home, okay? And it says, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents did not know it. That's like getting in the car to drive from my parents, and we get to like like the Muncie side, like right Anderson, Muncie area, and we're like, oh crud. We left Clint at Grandma's. 
Forgot to wake him up. We got in the car. We're just cruising along. We're having, we're having a celebration. We're, we're singing songs in the car. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, somebody goes, hey, Mom, Dad, where's Clint? Oh, back at Grandma's. Right? Only in this case, it'd be a caravan of cars. Because they would have been with a traveling party and they went a day's journey away. Their whole family would have been there. All his brothers, all his siblings, his mom, his dad, his aunts, his uncles. All of them traveling and Jesus isn't with them. This would not have been a popular decision at all in your house or my house. Right? But you can't really blame him because you didn't even know he was gone. So it's hard to like say, what, you know, it's all your fault because it's like, well, you didn't even... Think to wake me up or make sure I was with you, right? So then it goes on. It says, assuming he was in the traveling party, they went a day's journey. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. So they're a day's journey. Now they have to confess to all their relatives and friends. There's no hiding this. They're, they're, this is like you're in a caravan traveling on a trip, and the whole trip has to stop because you realize you forgot someone, and everybody now has to wait. Can you imagine that? That's really embarrassing. It goes on and it says, when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem to search for him. After three days, three days, three days, you've already spent your money, you budgeted. You've already been in Jerusalem for all the days of unleavened bread and for Passover. And now you've got to go back and spend three more days looking for your kid who happens to be the son of God that you lost. That's a lot of pressure. You think you have pressure at family Thanksgiving? This is huge pressure at this moment. This is an, a moment that no one in the family would have forgot. This would have came up every Passover. Remember when we forgot Jesus? Oh, I remember. The, oh, that was terrible. Like, this would have come up every single time at every family gathering. And it says, after three days they found him in the temple complex. Where did Luke say that all the people came to find Jesus when he's getting ready to lay down his life for the people? The same place he wanted to be when he was 12. It hasn't changed. His heart is still for his father. His heart is still for his father's temple. His heart is still for prayer. His heart is still to make his father known to the world around him. His heart is, I just want to be in the temple because that's where the praise is. That's where the thanks is. That's where the part, I just want to be there. That's his heart. And it didn't change even when he knew he was going to die. Even when, it would have, when he would have thought, I, I'm going to lack something, so I need to store up and make sure everything's going to be okay. i got to make sure my disciples are okay. Nope. He's still about his father's business. And all those, oh, and it says, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. This is what we've been reading about the last couple of chapters. He's going into the temple. The leaders are coming up to him asking questions. He's answering their questions. He's teaching the people. This is what he was doing at age 12. And he's still doing it. Then it goes on and says, all those who heard him were astounded at his understanding and his answers. This is exactly what we've been reading in Luke. No different. And then it says, when his parents saw him, they were astonished. Astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Here's Jesus in the temple, not worrying 
about his parents lacking a son. Not worrying about them lacking three days of supplies that they had planned. He's, he's not worried about them lacking any of that because he's so consumed with what's most important. And then he says, why were you searching? Or he says, your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me, he asked them. Didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? They did not understand what he said to them. I love this. He says, what? Why didn't you check the temple first? <laughs> like, it's my favorite hiding spot, right? Like, how did you not know this is where I would be? That you were searching for me anxiously and you didn't think to come and look in the temple? Well, of course not, because you ready for this? For Joseph and Mary, the temple was over. They did their unleavened bread. They did their Passover. It's over. We're done. Check the box. Now move on. Jesus must be staying in town because he wants to do the fun stuff, not the temple stuff. But see, to Jesus, it wasn't the world he was looking for. The world didn't have anything to offer him. Everything he wanted was in the house of his father, with his father and with his father's people. That's everything he wanted, and that's where you could find him. That's what he longed for. It goes on and it says, the chief priests and the scribes were looking for a way, back to 22, to put him to death because they were afraid of the people. In that chapter, they actually end up offering Jesus to stay in the temple to be taught and he goes home to be obedient with his parents. This time, the scribes and the Pharisees and the leaders are ready to kill him. They understand what Jesus is saying and they don't like what he has to say. They, he has confronted them and told them that you don't know God, that you lack, you lack salvation, you lack repentance, you lack eternity with my father and a relationship with him. And these were the guys that were supposed to not lack that. And it says, then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, who was numbered among the 12. He went away and discussed with the chief priests and temple police how he could hand Jesus, hand him over to them. They were glad and agreed to give him silver. So Judas accepted the offer and started looking for a good opportunity to betray him to them when the crowd was not present. How, how do you become a Judas? You, you've seen Jesus do miracles. You've seen demonic people healed. You've seen people's arms restored. You've seen dead people come back to life. You, you have seen things that, that people don't get to see. You have seen that there is nothing that this Savior lacks, this Jesus lacks. How do you get to this point? How do you get to a point where you believe there's something you lack so much, that you pursue so much, that you end up turning your back and betraying your Savior to go after that thing you lack versus giving your life to him. Well, the Bible tells us, if you look in John 12, 1, in John's gospel, six days before the Passover, guess what time this is? This is the same time we're talking about here. Six days before the Passover, this is John's account of what's leading up to the crucifixion. 
Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, the one Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha was serving them, and Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of fragrant oil, pure and expensive nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped his feet with her hair. So the house was filled with the fragrance of oil. Can, can you imagine doing this at family Thanksgiving? Like, you know, have you have that smell. Everybody's like, what is that smell? And everybody's trying to figure out, you know, what. This would have filled the entire house and been overwhelming. This would have been like, you know, nephew Joe coming in. He's 15 and he's got his girlfriend with him and he sprayed himself with so much Dracar Noir that it's like he, he leaves a trail behind him as he comes into the house and you're like, oh, Joe, please give me a break. Give it 10 years and you, you know, you'd be lucky to put on deodorant. Like, you know, that's what you're thinking as Joe comes into the house, right? But, oh, he's smelling great and the clouds follow him. You're like, oh, don't sit next to Joe. Like, I mean, that's what this would have been like. And then it says, so the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. It would have been sickening. Then one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, was about to betray him, said, why wasn't this fragrant oil sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? All we did was stink up the house with this stuff, and it was a waste. Listen, on the surface, this sounds like a pretty decent question. Yeah, that was kind of a waste. You just kind of, like, sprayed yourself with all the cologne in the world, and just so people, like, smell it. Like, I don't, it seemed like a waste. But Judas didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He was in charge of the money bag. And he would steal what was put in it. Jesus tells them what Mary did was anoint me for burial. Instead of putting the spices inside of me, which they won't have time to do because of his quick crucifixion and the need to bury him before the sun went down, which we'll find out later. They didn't have time to put spices inside of his body. Mary was spicing the outside anointing him and cleansing him and giving him the fragrant aroma of life in the midst of death to Jesus. And Judas's concern in this moment is not really one of love and compassion and care. His concern is, I still lack. You see, the reason G Judas would have been stealing out of the money bag was because he believed he deserved it. There was something Jesus and the disciples weren't giving him I've put in a lot of hard work. I can take a little money out. I mean, the people are giving us more anyway. It's, listen, the slide from this to being filled with Satan is really subtle. This is a man that had followed Jesus, walked with him, had seen all the miracles and everything, and this is where he ends up. Now, let me tell you this. Why in the world would Jesus... Son of God who knew everything, put this guy in charge of the money bag? I mean, there were other disciples who were even named like they were people of character. Like, Nathaniel was said that he was above reproach. Like, why not put Nathaniel in charge of the money bag then? You see, the, the, the only reason that I can figure out that Jesus put Judas in charge of the money bag is because he's trying to teach us a very important principle about what we believe, about what we have, and what we lack, and our response to it. If you read later, or earlier in Matthew's gospel, it says, don't collect for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, 
where thieves break in and steal. But collect for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves don't break in and steal. Where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Judas treasured the money. He was taking skimming off because he treasured it so much. And let's be honest, there are things we treasure more than we treasure our heavenly father. Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross and give his life. And he is going to leave nothing treasured behind. Even his own life he did not try to keep because he knew God would give him new life. That he would lack nothing in death from his father. And so here you have Jesus giving this to Judas to say, look, and in this passage... When Jesus taught this lesson, he would have known Judas was one of the 12. He would have known Judas's heart to steal. And this would have been a very merciful thing to tell Judas. He goes on and he says this. This is what Timothy says. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world. We could take nothing out. But if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with these. But those who want to be rich fall into temptation. A trap. And many foolish and harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And by craving it, some have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. This is Judas. But you, man of God, run from these things. Go the opposite direction. Judas could have easily said at any moment in the three years he was traveling with the disciples, guys, I confess, I've been stealing. Here's the money bag. I'm done. You guys handle it. I, I don't want this. I want God to be enough, and I don't need the money. I don't need to handle the money. I'm not the wisest one with the money. You can have it. I'm done. But he didn't. And he says, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. These are the fruits of the Spirit. He's saying pursue the spirit of God. Pursue God in a way that the spirit gives you the things that you can't get by purchasing. You can't get righteousness by buying it. You can't get love by buying it. It only comes from God. And these are the things we, could be, we should be concerned that we lack. Man, I lack being godly. God, help me be more godly. I lack faith. I lack love. I, no, we want to look at all the earthly things we lack, and those consume our prayer life. Those consume what we want. Not giving thanks for what God's done and then pursuing things that God wants us to pursue, believing that pursuing these things, we have a treasure in heaven that doesn't compare to anything we could get here. Man, that'll change your prayer life. That'll turn your prayer life upside down. Go back to Luke. It said, the day of unleavened bread came when the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. This was a time when it's like, okay, we've been repenting. Now it's time to sacrifice the lamb. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover meal for us so we can eat it. There was a certain way the meal was supposed to go down. There was an order to it. Jesus is celebrating an ancient family tradition where they gave thanks. Now remember, remember this. The Passover meant they did nothing to be delivered. God's people lacked everything and didn't get anything when, really when they trusted God in the Passover. They basically just painted this stuff over their, the doorposts of their house and were like cowering in there saying, when the angel of death came, saying, save our children, please. I, that's all we got. They weren't buying it. They weren't out making a scene. They just put the blood on the doorpost and hoped God would pass over, and he did. He passed over their sin. He passed over their sons because he was gonna kill his son. 
You don't have to sacrifice your children because my son will be sacrificed. He'll be enough. You can't kill enough of your kids to make it worth it, to make me love you. And God passes over, and then when the children of Israel leave, Egypt gives them gold, and they just want them out so badly after all the plagues and all the wrath. They're like, here, take it all. Just get out of here. We don't want you here anymore. They didn't lack anything. And then they get out in the wilderness. They think they lack everything because God only gives them manna. Manna gets tired after a while. I want more than manna, so give us something else. We need some meat. Fine. Have quail till it comes out your noses. Right? Their response to salvation was, you didn't give us enough, God. It's not enough. We still lack. That was their response to being saved from slavery in Egypt. Can we be honest? That's our response. It's my response so often. But you know, I'm grateful for a God. I'm grateful for a Savior that continues to give chances. Because watch this. They asked him, listen, he said to them, when you've entered a city, a man carrying a water jug will meet you. Follow him into the house he enters. Tell the owner of the house. The teacher asks you, where is the guest room where I can eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he'll show you a large furnished room upstairs. Make the preparations there. You know, I wonder if Jesus had, had like prepared this ahead of time, like paid and had it ready to go. We don't know. We don't know if this was a miracle, like this guy just felt led by God, or if Jesus had actually done the work to prepare ahead of time, and he's like, just go, find the guy, it'll all work out. We, we don't know. It, it doesn't tell us. But either way, God had planned this in advance. And it goes on, it says, when the angels, this is, now go to Luke chapter 2. When the angels had left them and returned to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go straight to Bethlehem and see what has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. Here are shepherds searching for what? The Passover lamb. Just like Jesus sent his disciples to seek out the Passover. These shepherds are sent out. They hurried off and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the feeding trough. After seeing him, they reported the message they were told about this child and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary was treasuring up these things in her heart and meditating on him. The shepherds returned, glorifying, praising God for all they'd seen and heard, just as they had been told. They said, wow, this is amazing that we were invited to see this. Jesus is like, man, I want you to come celebrate this Passover. Isn't it amazing that you get to see what's getting ready to happen? It's the same story. Because we desperately need someone to save us. We can't get salvation. We can't buy it. We can't earn it. If God doesn't save us, we're in trouble. That's Genesis. He clothed Adam and Eve after they sinned in animal skins. He had to cover them. He had to cover their sin, pass over their sin. And he said, I'm going to send one that will fully save you. Now have faith, have children, and place your faith in the fact that through your children, through the son, there will come a savior and live. That was his message to them. And here it is, these shepherds, these shepherds who took care of lambs. Most of these lambs that they took care of, probably, they raised to be slaughtered in the sacrificial system. And when they see Jesus, they're amazed. They've seen the Lamb of God. So when they went and they found it just as he told them. Just like the shepherds went and found Joseph and Mary, just as God told them. And they prepared the Passover. 
When the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. Then he said to them, look at what he says. I have fervently desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. How many of you went to your family Thanksgiving fervently desiring to be there? Like you had this fervent, like I just can't wait to sit with them and love on them. And like, ah, I just had this fervent desire. Most of us went because if we didn't show up, we'd get a phone call. <laughs> there was, I mean, we might have wanted to be there to see people, but, but did you really fervently desire it? Like Jesus is like, I have fervent, I've been waiting for this moment. My entire ministry. I've been waiting for us to eat this last time Passover lamb. Because the next time I eat this meal with you, it's going to be an eternity. It's going to be when you see me as the Passover lamb. And I invite you to my table again to eat with me. Like this is huge. And it says, look at this. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. You realize that our, we're supposed to be fervently desiring Passover. We're supposed to be fervently cleaning out the leaven of our lives, the sin of our lives, because we believe that the Passover lamb's coming back again. And he's going to invite us back to his table, and he fervently desires you, loves you, wants you at his table. This is amazing. You can't make this stuff up. This is awesome. And then he says, then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, thanksgiving, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I tell you, from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes, until my second coming. This is the last meal I'm going to eat with you. This is the last time we can come for Thanksgiving. This is it. Now, you have to remember that anytime you talk about a cup in the Old Testament, it always meant judgment and it always meant redemption. When you see in Revelation the bowls or the cups being poured out of judgment, leading to the revelation and the redemption of the Lamb, that's what Passover was. These cups were reminders. Each cup meant something at the meal. They'd pass another cup and another. It wasn't just a refill. It was like each cup meant something about judgment and about who God was and about trusting him. And he's looking and he's saying, this cup of judgment that I'm getting ready to take for you I give thanks that I get to do it for you. I give thanks that my father has, has, has endured with me and that I'm getting ready to do this on behalf of humanity. I'm giving thanks for the cup that I have to bear, the judgment that's coming. And he goes and he took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it. He gave it to them. This is the bread, the manna of heaven, of the Old Testament. This is the manna. I break the bread. It would have been unleavened bread, bread without yeast in it. It would have been like the manna bread. And it says, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Every time you have a family gathering and you do this small meal together, this, this thing, I want you to remember all the way back to Genesis, all the way back to Exodus. I want you to remember this moment that God has been preparing for all of human history because that's what this is about. It's about remembering me now. It's not about remembering a lamb. It's not about remembering Egypt and deliverance. It's all about remembering it was all about me. 
And he goes on, he says, in the same way he took the cup after supper, because you had a before and then an after supper cup, and said, this cup is the new covenant established by my blood. That would have been the cup of redemption. And he's saying, this is the new covenant. The judgments are done. This new covenant I'm offering you, this is the covenant of a shared relationship, God redeeming you. Before we eat the lamb together, before we feast on what the lamb did for us. He goes on and he says, but look, the hand of the one betraying me is at the table with me. For the Son of Man will go away as has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. So they begin to argue among themselves which of it which of them it could be who was going to do this thing? Then a dispute also arose among them about who should be considered the greatest. I love that Jesus does this. He has presented the cups of judgment. He has now presented the cup of redemption and a new covenant found in him. And the first thing on Jesus' mind, listen, the first thing on his mind is to look at the table and love Judas and say, don't do this. Please, don't do this. I'm warning you, don't go down that road. I love you enough to tell you. I love you enough to tell you in front of everyone, there's someone here who's going to betray me. You guys need to help one another. Confront them. Hold them accountable. Don't let them do this. Jesus could have just passed over. I've warned him enough. I've told him enough. He won't listen. Deal with it. And another time, he warns. And isn't it interesting that they go right to this and it says, but woe to that man, and then they begin to argue, which it could be. And it, listen, it's a small step from arguing about how sinful, it's not me, I'm good, I've done the right thing. It's a very small step from that to I'm awesome. I'm great. I'm good. And we make that step every day if we're really honest. We make that step that when we begin to see that there's no way I could, there's no way I could betray, there's no way I could, yeah, there is. If you're not careful, you can be just like, you, you can go down a road and wake up one day and wonder, how did I get here? But just know, the whole time you're going down that road, God's offering communion. That's what he's doing with Judas. He just offered Judas communion in the midst of his rebellion. He's that loving. He's that caring. He's that kind. And he looks and he says, an argument begins about the greatest because the only way to prove that I'm not that guy is to prove how great I am. Well, it can't be me because I did this and I did that. Remember when Jesus sent us out in the 70? I healed five, you only healed two people. Like, I'm obviously more spiritual than you are. I obviously know God and you don't. I obviously have his favor and you don't have his favor. It's always a subtle move from that arguing about, well, I would never do that to I'm great. Because it's the same heart. It goes on and it says, but Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles dominate them and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. Why do you do it? Do you lack something? Then why are you doing what you think you lack? Is it to try to become a benefactor? Well, getting good, I'm gonna get the benefits if I do this thing. And he says, but it must not be like that among you. Quit looking to get something. Believe that everything is found in my Father. Quit trying to be a benefactor. Just be faithful. 
goes on and it says, but it must not be like that. On the contrary, whoever is greatest among you must become like the youngest and whoever leads like the one serving. For whoever is greater, the one at the table or the one serving. Isn't it the one at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are the ones who stood by me in my trials. I bestow on you a kingdom just as my father bestowed on me so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. And you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. He's looking at them and he's saying, look, you're not going to lack anything. Quit trying to prove something. You don't lack anything if you truly believe in me. Quit acting like you do. And he goes on, he says, Simon, Simon, look out. Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. Can you imagine being at the family Thanksgiving? Dad comes out and says, someone's going to betray me. Someone's being, you know, whatever. And then everybody's arguing. And then you step in and say, quit this. None of you are humble. None of you are all the, And then all of a sudden, the first person you talk about is Simon. Don't you know that the other 11 were like, oh, got him. That's the, that's the traitor. He's, he's going to betray Jesus. I mean, he just called him out. It must be Simon. Look at what Jesus went right after him. Like, yep, Simon's going to do it. He, I knew it'd be Simon. He always speaks too fast. He does stupid stuff. I knew it'd be Simon. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when you've turned back, let, let me read that to you again. And you, when you've turned back, let's read it a third time. And you, when you've turned back, Peter, you're going to betray me. But you can turn back at any moment. You can turn back to my blood and my body. You can turn back to the new covenant. You can turn back to me. And guess what? You're going to do that, Peter. You're going to do. I'm giving you that you will not lack. You can have the confidence that you will turn back. And I'm telling you ahead of time because it's going to be really hard. And then he says, strengthen your brothers. And you're going to strengthen your family. Lord, he told him, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. I tell you, Peter, he said, the rooster will not crow today until you've denied me three times that you know me. He looks at Peter and he says, I know you're going to blow it. But I also know what I've prayed and I know what God's will is and I know what you're going to do and you're going to repent. You're going to come to the table again one day and eat with me. He goes on, he also told him, when I sent you out without a money bag, traveling bag or sandals, did you lack anything? He looks at the disciples and said, remember when I sent you out and you guys did miracles and amazing things happen? Did you lack anything? You see, they were, they were so consumed with watching God work in what they were doing, they probably missed meals. Have you ever done this? You ever been so busy, consumed with a project, getting it done, and you're on task, and you, you're like, man, I don't feel well. I'm not, I'm not sweating anymore. I'm kind of hungry. And then all of a sudden, you're like, I haven't drank anything in nine hours. I need to go get some water. Like, you know, and you drink water, you're like, wow, and then sweat starts pouring out of your pores, you know, and you're like, oh, that, that was what was wrong with me. I thought I was dying. No, like, it's the same thing. When you're consumed with what's really, like, when you're consumed with something, you'll forget to eat. You'll forget that, I don't, I don't lack anything. I've got, I'm going. And then all of a sudden, your body says, hey, you're lacking. Hey, help me here. <laughs> then it says, not a thing, they said. You didn't lack anything. You gave us even more than we could imagine. You gave us the power of your spirit. And they, then he said to them, but now whoever has a money bag should take it. 
and also a traveling bag. And whoever doesn't have a sword should sell his robe and buy one. What he's telling them is you got to get prepared. You've got to be prepared to take care of other people. You're going to have to be prepared for what's coming. Now, here's their interpretation. For I tell you, what is written must be fulfilled in me, and he was counted among the outlaws. Yes, what is written about me is coming to its fulfillment. Lord, they said, look, here are two swords. <laughs> Enough of that, he told them. They're thinking, here's two swords. You want us to go buy some more? We're really going to overthrow the Romans? We're going to take them on? We're going to come from pa Passover tomorrow in the temple is going to be awesome. We're going to kick, oh, it's going to be, oh, it's on. Here's two swords, we're ready to go. And he's like, enough of that. That's not what I'm talking about. You're not using the sword to be an offensive weapon to destroy people. You just need it to protect so you can continue to do the ministry you need. That's kind of the reference here. He goes on, he says, he went out and made his way as usual, where? To the Mount of Olives. He's not trying to hide. He knows he's going to be betrayed. He knows that they're coming to get him. And you know what he does? He stays right on schedule. He does exactly what God the Father has told him to be obedient to do. He doesn't change the schedule. And the disciples followed him. When he reached the place, he told them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. See, the way we enter into temptation is we begin to believe there's something we lack. And Satan gets in there and he begins to tempt us that you lack this, you lack that, and you deserve this and you deserve that. And we begin to go there and all of a sudden it's not too far that we find ourselves in a bad place. Then he withdrew from them about a stone's throw away, or stone's throw, knelt down and began to pray, Father, if you're willing, take this cup away from me. Now, there's a mark there. I don't know how long that pause is in the Greek. We don't know. I don't know how long the pause was from, Father, if you're willing to take this cup away from me. And then him saying, nevertheless, I don't lack anything, so not my will, but your will be done because there's nothing I need except you. And if I obey you, I'm with you, so I'll take the cup of judgment. When I don't deserve it, when it wasn't me who did it, but I'm gonna take it. And he goes on and he says, then an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthened him. Being in anguish, he prayed more fervently and his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. Jesus understands what's getting ready to happen. He understands that for the first time in his life, what he agreed to at the beginning of creation is going to happen. Can I just tell you, if you're a Christian, this will happen to you at some point in your life because it happened to our Lord. There is going to come a point in your life where you will come to a place where you will have to decide, like sweats of like blood coming out, am I truly going to to surrender to my God or am I gonna get what I think I deserve? There, what, I, what I'm owed. There's going, there may be multiple times, but there's gonna come moments like this in your life as a Christian. And the reason I know it is because Jesus had these moments. And if he's our savior and he's our Lord and we follow him, then we're gonna have the same moments he had. And his response is amazing. And then he goes back. When he got up from prayer and came to the disciples, he found them sleeping, exhausted from their grief. Exhausted from their grief. 
He asked them, get up and pray so that you won't enter into temptation. While he was still speaking, suddenly a mob was there and one of the 12 named Judas was leading them. He came near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the son of man with a kiss? He warns him in love again. Judas, don't do this. And don't pretend like we're good. Isn't that the worst at family gatherings? Everybody gets together and pretends like we're all good when it's not good. It's not good. I don't know what to do with this, but it's not good. And I'm going to say it, and I'm going to trust God to make something good out of something that's not good. And then he says, while he was speaking, suddenly they were there. Then those around him saw what was going to happen. They asked, Lord, should we strike with the sword? Then one of them struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. I mean, it's going down. This is what they thought was coming. Here we go. It's time. We thought we got to wait till tomorrow, but we're doing it tonight. He cuts the ear off. But Jesus responded, no more of this. And touching his ear, he healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, temple police, and the elders who had come for him, he still speaks the truth. Have you come with swords and clubs as if I were a criminal? Every day I was with you in the temple complex. You never laid a hand on me. You never confronted me about any sin or anything I had done wrong. But now you do in secret. But this is your hour and the dominion of darkness. They seized him, led him away, and brought him to the high priest's house. This is the biggest sham. This is awful. Goes on and it says, meanwhile, Peter was following at a distance. They lit a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together. And Peter sat among them. When a servant saw him sitting in the firelight and looked closely at him, she said, this is the man, this, this man was with him too. But he denied it. Woman, I, I don't know him. After a while, someone else saw him and said, you're one of them too. Man, I am not, Peter said. About an hour later, another kept insisting, this man was certainly with him, since he also is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Three times, Peter denies his Lord. Peter is struggling to believe that there's nothing lacking. See, Peter thinks there's something lacking in his Savior, and so I can't say I was with him. I have to pretend like, I got to protect my my name, my brand, i got to protect who I am. I can't admit that, that I'm with him. Watch what happens. Immediately, while Peter was still speaking, a rooster crowed. Then the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Now, I've read this passage a lot, and this hit me like a ton of bricks this week. Peter's standing off at a distance, thinks he's hiding in the crowd, thinks he's hiding out from his Lord like we do in our sin. We think we're hiding out, we've covered it up, nobody knows. We're, we're hiding out, and denying, saying things that we would never say to his face. We'd never, no, we wouldn't do that, but saying, doing things that we never do. And when the rooster crows, the Savior turns and finds Peter in the crowd and just looks right at him. So Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. See, that's what our sin should do to us. 
Our sin should cause us to weep bitterly. But see, here's the thing. That's only half of what Jesus told Peter. You remember the other half? Peter thinks he lacks now. I lack my savior. I lack my integrity. I lack my character. I I lack, I lack. And Jesus said, it's okay, Peter. Remember, you're going to come back to me. You're going to return to me and lead your brothers. And it doesn't happen this day. It doesn't happen the next day. It takes a few days. But we find Peter running to the tomb to see his risen Savior. You want to know why? Because he knew Jesus told him to return to him. He knew that when I find my risen Savior, he'll forgive me. He's waiting for me. He told me to return. So when we find Peter later running full steam, when the women come back and tell him he's resurrected, he wants to see him because he knows he's been told he can return. Can I just tell you? That's communion. That's our God. He is a God that is full of justice and full of wrath and has a plan to put that wrath and his justice on his son And he has a plan to call us back to him, to say you can return. And I'm here. There's a new covenant. And the new covenant is you can continue to return and receive my grace and my forgiveness because it's not about what you do, it's about who I am. And if you believe I am who I say I am, you can return. And even though that rooster's crowing and you hear it and you go, I can't believe I did that, that's the moment when you go, I can return. This is such a beautiful picture. If you think that you lack the love of God, that God couldn't forgive you, forget that. That is not what God says. And if you're pursuing things, believing that God's holding out on you or that you deserve things that you lack, stop it. Enough of that. Come to him, surrender. Just say, I'm yours, whatever you want. And you know what? I'll get up the next day and do simple because from age 12 to age 30, Jesus did simple. Just got up and went to work, went to synagogue, waiting for the heavenly father to say, go. And he was just a faithful servant to take care of his family and to do simple things. And whatever came, he continued to surrender. Listen, there's no other book like this one. There's no other God like this one. And there's no other covenant made like the covenant that God gave us to sit at him, at, with him at his table. And one day when we get to heaven, we are going to sit at that table with him and that is going to be amazing and I hope that you will fervently desire it today and I hope that you will fervently desire to sit with him one day forever just like he fervently desires to want to sit with you